If you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We are moving on. Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to start at verse 11 this morning. If you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you would teach us, Lord, to love and to honor the Christ who is our reason for everything. God, bring us into a relationship with Jesus that transforms our lives that transforms our relationships, that transforms our commitments, that transforms our world. For God, Christ is supreme over all things, and he is the reason for everything that we do and everything that we ask. For we ask it in his name. Amen. So we have been considering the superiority of Christ um, since we began the book of Hebrews years ago. Um, It is the focus of the book that Christ is superior to the entirety of the Old Testament, that he is superior to the entirety of the old law, that he is superior to the entirety of the priesthood, that he is the answer to all of the things that were incomplete in the old covenant. Um, In the last few months, we have been considering Christ in the specific issue of the tithe and the superiority of the tithe being given in the matter of what Abraham gave to Melchizedek. And the tithe in this context is just a proof which is used in the greater context. The real issue is the superiority of Christ in all things over the priesthood of Levi. It is the inadequacy of the Old Testament to actually bring anyone into a right relationship with God. And in the end, what I want to do as we start this new section is to think with you about just what the aim of God is and just what the aim of God was, and then use that platform to begin to understand just how glorious is the cross that removed the record of our wrongs and restored us to God once and for all. Because remember, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant did not do that for anyone. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. We we read this morning in, in the record of numbers how many animals were sacrificed every year just for that one feast. I, I didn't tally it, 
but it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals, and it wasn't enough. And that's all on top of the regular offerings and the sin offerings and the guilt offerings and the free will offerings and every other imaginable offering. And that was just one ceremony in the midst of dozens throughout the course of the year. And it was never enough. They had to do it over and over and over and over again. It was not enough. It could not be. And yet, what was the goal of God? What is the goal of God in his work in our lives? Conformity to the image of Christ. It is perfection because Christ is perfect. Amen? Amen. If, if we are conformed to the image of Christ, then we are made perfect, and that's the goal. And that has always been the goal. Even through the imperfect structure of the Old Covenant, the long-range goal has been unchanged. God is determined to make his people perfect. And, and there's some ways that this fleshes out in our lives. And first of all, it's important for us to understand that we are then perfectly accepted. So look at me at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 1. For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he has made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been revealed by the Spirit to, the, to his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6 says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So what is it that Paul is saying here? That the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles and that they would all be brought in and all be accepted. That every one of us would be acceptable and accepted in the sight of God, not by our own working, but by the working of Christ. This is really the heart of the entire issue. It's that we are estranged from God by our sin. We are estranged from God by our own rebellion against him. Not only in the issue of original sin, which stains our, our very natures, but in the issue of our actual committed, willful, determined rebellion against our sovereign. We do not honor God. In our natures, we not only don't honor him, we hate him. And apart from the mercy of God, as Jared pointed out earlier in his prayer, Apart from the mercy of God, every one of us would be exactly what the worst person on the planet is. And some of us would probably give him a run for his money. <laughs> because that's our nature. That's who we are. That's mankind. And yet God in his mercy has intended to make his people accepted and acceptable to him. This has always been the goal. This has always been the purpose. This has always been what God is about. And we are also not only perfectly accepted, but we are perfectly sanctified. 
1 Corinthians 6.11 says, speaking about wickedness and evil things, he says, such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he talks about, in, in the verses prior, about how, how there's no room in heaven for thieves and adulterers and blasphemers and fornicators and, and homosexuals and sodomites and all these. This list is long. And he says, and such were some of you. So how is it that there's no, no room for them there and then Christians are accepted? Because they have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They have been made acceptable in the sight of God and they have been sanctified. They have had their sin removed. And ultimately, it's important for us to understand that the working of God is about making his people holy. It's about making his people acceptable. It's about the fact that we should not be complacent to have sin abiding in our lives. And where there is sin, there is rebellion. And God is not content that his children would be rebels against his will. Hebrews 2.11 says, Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 10. Turn there if you would. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. And he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. And by that will, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In verse 14, skip down there, he says, For by this one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is the reality of what we have been given in Christ. We have been perfectly sanctified. Now, there is, there is some tension in this truth. Scripture speaks about our, our salvation in three tenses. It speaks about us having been saved, it speaks about us being saved, and it speaks about the fact that we will be saved. Having been saved is justification. Our being saved is the sanctifying process of the Spirit's work in our life now, and will be saved is the promise of the fulfillment of God in our glorification. And all of these things are true. And so while we talk about God sanctifying us, because we have been justified, and because the promise of our glorification is as real as what's already been accomplished, we know that our sanctification is also, in one sense, a foregone conclusion. We have been perfectly sanctified. God looks at us and says, you are sanctified for my purpose, flaws and all, warts and all, mistakes and all, abiding sin and all, I have still sanctified you for my use. And I will accomplish my will through your life. I will accomplish my will through the working of my spirit in you. And this reality drives us. This reality conforms us because often we are plagued by this sense of our own failure, our own inadequacy, our own sin, our own ick. And that can be used by the enemy to cripple us, 
It can be used by the enemy to hobble us because, well, I'm not worthy to speak and I'm not worthy to think about this and I'm not worthy to say anything. I know my own sin and so I'm just going to be quiet because I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a hypocrite. But beloved, hypocrisy comes when we deny our sin. It doesn't come when we own our sin and speak the truth of the gracious God who has saved us. That's not hypocritical. That's glorifying to him. And recognizing your weakness and saying, Lord, I need your help. I need you to show me grace and mercy. I need you to lift me into what you have created me to be. And casting ourselves upon him saying, God, help me. That's honoring to him. That's the process of this perfection. And there's this tension between what God intended and what God intends and what God is accomplishing and what God has accomplished. And all of that tension holds us in this place of grace that it is to be alive as as believers. The fullness of that. It, It just holds us in the will and in the mind of God. It holds us here, accomplishing His purposes by His power and for His glory. This idea drives us to our knees in praise. It drives us to our knees in worship. It drives us to our knees in supplication, saying, God, I need more. I need more of you. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And the good news is, is that as God has perfectly sanctified us, he also has agreed in his own will that we are perfectly conformed by everything that he brings into our lives. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes in this glorious passage, one of the most misused and misapplied verses, starting at verse 28. It says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, Paul writes to us about this idea that God has determined not only to save us, but to conform us to the image of Christ, so that we would be made like unto him. And that everything in our lives that is anything is designed by God for the purpose of conformity. Every trial, every challenge, every issue is designed by God for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. And the fullness of what we do and the fullness of what we are is aimed at that truth. Beloved, hear this. God has given you the promise that he will finish what he has begun in you. And notice that all of the things that Paul said after conformity are given to us in past tense. Called, chosen, justified, glorified. The the reality is is that in, in the mind of God, the time of how he accomplishes his purposes it's inconceivable to us to understand how he deals with all of that. It's already done. It's already accomplished, even as he's fulfilling it in us right now. And this means, then, that one of the things that God is doing in our lives is going through the action of consummating us to his purposes for his will. He's making our thinking align with his. 
So he's not having to drag us by, by hooks and, and, and chains to make us do anything. He brings our wills into submission to his. It feels a little different to us. It feels a little more organic. It feels a little more willing. It feels a little more voluntary. But that's the working of God. That's God changing our hearts. It's God giving us his spirit, living in us, and, and nudging us, and moving us, and leading us, and sometimes dragging us. But it's this promise that he is doing this work so that our lives and our minds and our wills will be consummated to his desire and purposes. Look at Galatians chapter 4. I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5. Starting at verse 24, it says this. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So we have this promise, we have this idea that God has given us the grace to do this very thing. Now, what's important for us to recognize in the context of this conversation is that the old priesthood could not do this. The, the things that, that the old priesthood did was establish a framework by which sin would be known and God would be sought, but it did not have the completion which has been wrought in Christ. And therefore, it was inadequate to accomplish this purpose. The old priesthood could not accomplish this, this goal of God. No flesh has ever been perfected by the law. Romans 3.20 says, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Again, the continuing sacrifice proves this over and over and over, for the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Look again at Hebrews 10. We read from verse 5 on, but look at the first four verses of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 1, says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, I'll read that again, can never with these same sacrifices which they make continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins, but in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So the priesthood established around the sacrifices cannot sanctify, cannot perfect, cannot complete the work of making us like Jesus. They cannot complete the work of making us holy. They cannot complete the work of our sanctification. Now, the overarching aim of God's will and purpose in all that he has done is to make us perfect. But the aim of the Old Testament, taken in, in abstract, the aim of the Old Covenant, was not to perfect anyone. If, if God was trying to perfect us by that structure, then he failed. Right? Just think that through for me. If God's intention was that the Old Testament would save somebody, he's telling us plainly in his word, well, I failed. So, does God ever fail? No. 
God never fails. God always accomplishes his purposes. So it must mean that there was a different set of purposes constrained in the Old Testament. They were preparatory. They were designed for a season to accomplish a task, the overarching task of which was the perfection of God's people. But that section of it didn't accomplish that. What was the task of the Old Testament? Well, it was, first of all, to give us a type of Christ. The reminder of sins was hard-baked into the structure of the Old Testament. The continuing sacrifice over and over and over again taught the guilt. The structure of the law not only revealed to us the heart, mind, will, and character of God, but it also revealed to us our own inadequacy. We could never keep the law. Um, Anybody who thinks they keep the law doesn't understand the law. Just pick one. Just, Just take one law, just one of the Ten Commandments. I don't care which one you choose. Take the one that you think is easiest and then think for a second and tell me, have you violated that command even once in your whole life? And we're talking about the easiest one. And you guys are basically a bunch of nice folks. You're good people as far as people go. And you can't keep even one. Even the easiest one that I haven't picked, but you did. (laughs) Your favorite commandment, the easiest one for you to keep, and you haven't done it. You take my point? We can't keep the law. And what makes it worse is that Jesus said the law is not about what you do, but about what you think. It's about the flavor of your heart. It's about the intention of your mind, the intention of your will. It's about the purpose of your life. That's why he went on to say, look, you guys have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at a woman with lust, you're already guilty of adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say to you, and this one is a stickler, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you're already guilty of his blood. So when you let your passions rise up and you get frustrated with somebody and you're not being gracious to them and you're not being kind to them and you're not being understanding to them and you just flash in anger, guess what you just did in the sight of God? Murder. Right? See, Jesus said it's not about what you do as much as it is about who you are, how you think, and why you think. And the purpose of the Old Testament law was not to give us a set of rules that we could please God and obey and thereby earn our way into heaven by how we obey, but to teach us of the great need of grace. The purpose of the Old Testament was to drive us to our knees before God and say, God, I need mercy from you because you are good and I am not. And in the context of it, God gave us the commandments that he gave because each of them reflects his character. Each of them tells us something crucially important about who God is and about how he wants us to know him. God did not just sit down and draw ten random things out of a hat and go, okay, here's how I'm going to make their life no fun. That's what lost people think. They look at the Ten Commandments and they say, you know, all God wants to do is take away all my fun. Sadly, I know some Christians who think that way too, but you take my point. Each of the commandments tell us something of the nature of God. Just in the few that that I mentioned, just in the the question of adultery, why is that so important to God? Well, because God himself is faithful. 
God loves whom he loves by the determination of his own will, and he never relents in whom he loves. And he never varies, and he never changes his will, and he's always faithful to what he says and what he promises. And why are we not to hate and kill and murder? Because God is the giver of life, and God's wrath is always just, and his anger is always righteous, and ours never is, which is why the scripture also tells us that the wrath of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. You see, every single commandment teaches us who God is, it teaches us something about him. And the structure of the Old Testament is designed to teach us that we need saving. That's why in Galatians, Paul says the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law teaches us of just how desperately we need Jesus. That's in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. They teach us of our need for Christ. They teach us of our need for a Savior. And they also give us a type. And by type... I mean the expression of God's wrath for sin. Because there is nothing more visceral than death. And and when you consider the worship and the structure of the worship, the, the passage, it never fails to amaze me how God makes our Old Testament readings line up with where we are. <laughs> I don't do that. That, that's God. We're just reading through the Old Testament and, and we're preaching through Hebrews and these things have this synchronicity that's just stunning. Count the bulls. 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. And that's on top of the daily. And count the, the rams. 14 every day. And, and the lambs. And, and you go through this and understand every single one of those animals was slaughtered in front of the people as worship. What was the point of them? That the wages of sin is death. And that blood is required for the removal of sin. Which is why in Hebrews we're told without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Because sin and death are intimately connected. This is why evolution is a lie. Okay, understand this. Fundamentally, there is no room in, in a true theology for evolution in any form. Not the theistic evolution, which says that, that the age of the New Testament, or the day of the New Testament, or Old Testament, excuse me, the day of creation is a long, long age, and in it animals lived and died and all that sort of thing. If you allow that, what you do is you divorce sin from death. And if death existed before sin then death is not a consequence for sin. And if death is not a consequence for sin, then death cannot be a payment for sin. Do you understand what we're doing when we allow this? We undo the entire structure of our salvation. And we allow this because we want to appease lost people who think that their science says something that it doesn't. Because they can't be bothered to understand the facts as they actually are. There are so many assumptions baked into the theories of evolution that, that we could spend years going through them. And all of the assumptions that they bake into them are lies. Understand this. God has told us what is. 
And in his telling us what is, his determination is to bring us to himself and to show us the truth of all that is so that we might know him. This is his will for us. And the Old Testament gives us this type. It gives us this picture of how sin and death are intimately connected and how we need a Savior and we need someone to intervene. Because just think it through from the context of of the poor Hebrew that's trying to keep the law. How many bulls do you have to raise in order to give that many sacrifices every year? How do you do it? You can't. There's not enough grass in all your land to feed that many critters so that you can just go kill them. And there's no return on that. There's no coin being exchanged. So you're supporting that just out of what you have. What does that communicate to you at its fundamental level? Leave everything else out of it. What does that communicate? You need help. Amen? You need help. You cannot provide it. You cannot do what needs to be done. And that's the truth of the entire structure. The whole Old Testament gives us that picture. When God gave them the plan and the the design and the pattern for the tabernacle, do you know how much gold and silver went into that? They were slaves in Egypt. Where did the gold come from? They plundered Egypt when they left. The Egyptians gave them gold to send them on their way. Go away, go away, go away. Just stop for a minute and think this through. Why did the Egyptians do that? Because God put it on their hearts to do that. Why? Because they were going to need the gold and need the silver and need the precious jewels for the building of the tabernacle. Because they didn't have the resources to do it. You see, in the end, everything that we need, God provides. And the whole Old Testament structure gives us this picture of God's magnificent grace in provision and our desperate need, and yet it still leaves us needing more because the Old Testament cannot fulfill the goal of saving anyone. Now, I want to think through this question that the writer of Hebrews levels. So look, with me, look back with me at Hebrews 7. In verse 11, he says this, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So this is the fundamental question that we're going to spend a few weeks addressing. We're just laying the groundwork today. Because if, if, the, if the Levitical priesthood was enough, then why in the world do we have this whole priesthood of Melchizedek? Why in the world do we have this entire new thing coming? Is it not a statement that if the Levitical priesthood was intended to save, then God either failed or lied? You see it? If the purpose of the Levitical priesthood was to actually save anybody, 
then God either lied about that purpose or he failed. If perfection of, by the Levitical priesthood, if perfection by the Old Testament law was the aim, then what in the world happened? So I ask you the question, does God lie? No. Is a priesthood which cannot complete sanctification going to fulfill its goal? No. It cannot. Any priesthood which cannot complete its sanctification of its people is false. So that was never God's intention because God doesn't lie. So either his purpose was never to sanctify us or that priesthood failed or that was not its purpose. Because the work has to be done by some other manner. And it has to be done by some other manner. If, if that priesthood was supposed to save and it can't, then the salvation has to happen some other way, not connected to that priesthood or any priesthood. Right? So ask yourself the question. Has God given this priesthood as a, as a red herring, as a false trail? No, it's connected to, to the New Testament covenant to show us our need. And it's connected to the New Testament covenant to show us that sin and death are intimately connected. And it's connected to it because the sacrifice that needed to be offered is not an animal, but the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And we have to recognize this. We have to cling to the truth that God never changed his mind. And often we, we hear people and they, they hint around at this. They hint around at the fact that God intended the Old Testament to save, but you know the people were just too bad for it. And so then you get into the whole left-behind sort of philosophy of the end times, and they, they teach that there will be a return to the Old Testament structure, and that people will be saved by keeping the Old Testament law. So let me ask you the question, can the blood of bulls and goats ever take away sin? No. Not before, and not in the future. Has anybody ever been saved by keeping the law? No. Will anybody ever be saved by keeping the law? No. So we, we make these structures up in our imagination and we make God a liar by clinging to them. Beloved, we have to do better than this. We have to let Scripture speak to us about what is and what isn't. And we have to understand that the law never saved anybody. That was never its intention. Because God doesn't lie. God never changed His mind. God never worked out a plan and went, oh, that's not going to work. Now what are we going to do? That's not God. God from the beginning has ordained his plan and his purpose, and it is unchanging, and it is absolutely true from start to finish. And that includes our understanding of the apocalypse. It includes our understanding of what Revelation teaches. It includes our understanding of the end of all things, that God's purpose is unchanged. And any eschatology that you want to cling to that does not include the overarching purpose of God that is unchanged from the beginning 
is a broken eschatology. Because God's intention has been unaltered since the beginning. Since before he ever said, let there be. Our God does not lie. And our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is absolutely God of all things, and it is completely within his purview to do the work that he intends to do in the fullness of his time. So let's think then about what a true priesthood looks like when Christ takes on the mantle of being our high priest. Because if God's intention was to perfect a people, to sanctify a people, and to make us whole and clean and righteous and holy in every way, then has Christ accomplished that purpose? He must have, right? When he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the word finished is the same root word that we have here in Hebrews 11 to be perfect. I have perfected the work. I have accomplished everything you gave me to do. There's nothing left hanging. We don't have to wait for the red bull to be born and raised up so that we can sacrifice it and build a new temple so that all things can be completed. Because I am the new temple. You destroy this temple, I will raise up the true temple in how long? Three days. days. Not three millennia, three days. And did he? Yes, he got up out of the grave. So all this garbage that we want to hear and bandy about, about what what the book of Revelation says and doesn't say and how these things are going to happen, it's all lies. Christ has completed the work. And the only thing waiting for his return is him to give his call to the last one that he has chosen. Now, if that doesn't fire up your evangelism, I don't know what will. Because you might be the one who shares the gospel with the last one. Wouldn't that be fun? Go out and find your family. Go out and find those whom God has called and chosen unto himself so that you might be a part of the working of Christ in everything that goes on. That's an eschatology worth living. The eschatology that says that Christ is supreme and he has lived out and he has finished everything that he set out to do. And that he is just now marking time until the fullness of it comes about. That includes how he deals with us in our perfection. Because the true priesthood can accomplish the goal of perfection even now. So, we aim to be perfected in this life. Our goal is for God to teach us his truth. Right? We want to grow in grace. We want to be more like Christ today than we were yesterday. We want to be more like Christ tomorrow than we are today. We want to grow in knowledge. We want to grow in understanding. And God's purpose for us to our pleasure and delight is to do the very same thing in us. He desires that we would grow. And since He desires that we would grow, here's a newsflash. Grow you shall. Maybe not at the rate that you want. And maybe not in the manner that you want. Because sometimes we stubbornly cling to our sin. And therefore God must perform a little surgery upon our lives. And we call them trials. We call them difficulties. We call them burdens. God calls it progress. 
2 Corinthians 2.6 says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of the age, nor the rulers of the age, who are coming to nothing. So immediately what we see is that the truth of God's word helps us grow in our maturity and in our understanding so that the questions that plagued us when we were young believers suddenly begin to bring some understanding. And if you have grown at all in your, in your maturity as a believer, you recognize that you know more now than you used to. Amen? And, and you know less than you're gonna, and that humility is, is, is a helpful balancing point. Because none of us want to be arrogant and none of us want to say, I know everything, listen to me. Not even the preacher. <laughs> Shouldn't anyway. But it would be a lie to say that I don't know more than I used to. Because God teaches. And so Paul says, I speak truth and I speak the wisdom of God among those who are mature. In other words, the truths that are being poured into you are evidence of the fact that God is growing you. And that's a good thing. That's evidence of the fact that he is accomplishing his purpose in perfecting you, because part of what has to be perfected is your understanding of truth. You have to get a grasp of the truth of God. Your obligation as a follower of Christ is to be growing in your understanding from the day that you're saved until the day that you die. You should always be learning something more of God. You should always be growing in grace. You should always be growing in how you're applying what God is teaching you. Your heart should always be being enlarged towards God. But you also understand that Christ's intention for you was that you be made perfect. In the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed in verse 23 that he would be in us. He says, I in them and you in me, God in him, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me. So Jesus' prayer is that the Spirit of Christ would dwell in you and that He would bind us together in one heart and one mind and that He would make us perfect by dwelling in us so that our lives would reflect the glory of God and give true testimony to the fact that God has indeed come. Now let me ask you a practical question. What is the number one obstacle to the advance of Christianity in the world today? Christians, <laughs> right? It's us. Wherein lies the difficulty? Well, it's the fact that our flesh rises up and we fight against what God is doing and we don't have the right aim. We're selfish in our intention. We're selfish in our application and, and we're self-centered in our purposes because we're human beings. And when we live that way, we become a hindrance to the gospel. But Jesus prayed for you that you would be made perfect. And he prayed for you that you would be made perfect in your unity as the body and that you would be made perfect in your unity to God. Now, why does it matter that you may be, may be made perfect in your unity to God? Because his will is always going to be accomplished. And his will is for the advancement of the gospel for the sake of the glory of Christ. And the more that you draw near to him, and the more that your mind is conformed to the image of Christ, the more that your life is conformed to the image of Christ, the more you're made perfect in your understanding, as we just read, the more 
God's presence in you draws you close to him. And you're not fighting against him and you're not wandering away and you're not being an obstacle to the gospel. You are being the very hands and feet of Christ in the midst of a dead world. This is his promise. And this is the prayer of Christ for you, that you would be perfected in this union and in this unity with Christ. And then we have the reality that we are growing to be aimed more like unto Christ. And and listen to the language of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, until we all come to the unity of the faith. So there's that same thing that Jesus prayed for. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Listen to this. To a perfect man. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I know it's a, a big buzz thing in churches today and in the corporate world today to have this vision statement. Let me propose to you that at a personal level, you would fight long and hard to have a better vision statement for your life than to be a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow. There's a vision. There's a purpose. What does it mean to be perfect? It means to be the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Everything that Jesus was is there for you. Everything that Jesus is is there for you. Everything that Jesus possesses is there for you. The fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ is yours as his child. So any place in your life where you need more than you have as far as, God, I need to grow in grace. I need to grow in understanding. I need to grow in wisdom. I need to grow in peace. I need to grow in joy. I need to grow in these things because my life right now, there is so much turmoil and there is so much pain and there is so much sorrow and there is so much angst and so much anger over all the things that are going on in the world right now. I I, I just need more from you, God. What does this promise us? The fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And it's yours, beloved. It's yours. This has been promised to you. This is the aim of the gospel in your life. And we grow in the knowledge of God so that Christ would be presented perfectly in us. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man, here it is again, Perfect in Christ. Everything that we do as followers of Christ Jesus should be to present Christ perfectly. Listen to me. It means that every place sin raises its head in your life, you are duty-bound and honor-bound to war against it with everything you have. Because it is Christ who is being represented by your life. And this applies to all of us. We all have sins. 
We all have things that we fight against. We all have things that we struggle with. There are temptations that rise. There are manifestations of our old selves that that hang on to us. There are things that we've been taught and things that we have believed about God or about ourselves or about our circumstances. And all of them combine together to keep us under. But the aim of God in our lives is to present Christ perfectly. And the wonder of it is, he's going to accomplish that purpose. He's not going to fail because God never fails and God never lies. So the aim of God in our lives is to perfect us in how we present Christ. And it's also to remind us that we are perfectly complete in him. Colossians 2.10 says, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And yet, not while we are here. There's this tension again, right? Paul, speaking about perfection in Philippians 3, says, Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has laid hold of me. And what is it that Christ Jesus has laid hold of him for? Salvation and perfection in him. So there's this tension, this reality. Look, I still have sins of the flesh. I still have things that rise up, which is why hypocrisy is such a problem because we get hold of one side of this and we say, I'm supposed to be perfect. The preacher said I'm perfect. The preacher said I'm complete. The preacher didn't say you were perfect. If you thought that, you're not listening. You you have been perfected in Christ, but it is not yet. And this tension exists. And Paul said, I struggle on and I press on and I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. In other words, I want my life to be aimed at why God saved me, which is for the glory of Christ. I want everything that I am and everything that I do to show forth the glory of God. I want everything that my life is about to resonate with who Christ is. I don't want there to be anything in my life that is a blockade to His glory. And beloved, let me tell you the truth. There's lots in my life that is a blockade to His glory. But my desire is that He would eradicate all of it. And that desire wars against my flesh. That desire wars against my, 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 my existence. In our final state, however, we will be absolutely perfected. There's hope. Hebrews 12.23 says, To the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. There's glory there. There's glory there. Just men made perfect. When we step into eternity, we are transformed into the likeness of God and the fullness of it. 1 Corinthians 13.10 says, When that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. But in this life, God counts us as perfected in Christ. And he counts us as perfected in Christ because of the wonder, the miracle of justification, whereby God takes our sin and counts it to the credit of Christ and takes the righteousness of Christ and counts it to our credit. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. 
This is the wonder of, of our God. He has done this work. It is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. His death counted against our sin. And his complete and perfect absolute obedience to the law of God that we could never keep. You see, I said nobody could ever keep the law in order to be saved. But Jesus kept the law not because he needed to be saved, but because he was saving us. He kept the law in our place. He fulfilled absolute obedience to everything that God required. He kept the full measure of the law, all the thou shalts, and he kept the full measure of the law, all the thou shalt nots. He never disobeyed anything that God said, either by what he did or what he didn't do. And more than that, he actively obeyed every word that God ever uttered. And when he did that, he did that to your credit. In other words, he put the entire tally of his complete obedience to the law into your account. And when he did that, he went into your account and he robbed you of all of your sin. And he said, that's mine. And I'm going to pay for it. And he carried it to the cross and he died under the weight of God's wrath, being punished for sin you committed. And he did that so that you would be perfected. It's the most mind-blowing truth that has ever been uttered anywhere at any time. That God would do this for us. Now, I'm aware that right now, somebody's thinking to themselves, he has done all that for me, and I still did what I did this morning. I still thought what I thought last night. I still acted how I acted yesterday. I still came into church angry about whatever. Understand you are not alone. And I'm not talking about me. Although, I am talking about me as well. But listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7. It's worth reminding ourselves that the tension and the struggle is real. Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 15. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but that which I hate, that I do. And if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For my will is present within me. But how to perform what is good, I, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, that I don't do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. 
but with the flesh, the law of sin. And there is therefore now. Don't stop at chapter 7. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the spirit of the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What a God we serve. What glory has been given to us in Christ. What promise, what power, what perfection. And the will of God for you is that you grasp hold of what he has given you. And that you lay hold of what has been promised to you and what is coming. And we're going to spend some time thinking about this, but I just want to give you a taste that there is a perfection that is given to us as a blessing from the Lord. It's a gift bag, if you will. And it blesses us and it grants us favor and it secures our hope even in the midst of this fallen world and in the reign of this present darkness. And these blessings are ours by Christ. They're given to us by His Spirit as a down payment for what is coming, our final inheritance of perfection. And they transform our worship and they give us all the good things that are ours in Christ when we rest in His finished work. We're going to unpack this idea a little bit next week. We're going to run through it. But I just want to give you this this listing, this grab bag, a checklist, if you will. These are things that God promises you. First of all, righteousness. Granted to you on the full righteousness of Jesus Christ given in your place. Peace. Not an abstract sort of peace like, oh, I'm happy with the whole world. But peace with God. So that you know that the wrath of God no longer hangs over your head. And that even when you mess up, and you will, before you get out of this building today, you will yet again sin. Even when you mess up, you know that God's peace is a promise to you. Because it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Him. It is the gift of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Peace is the purchased possession of the redeemed. It is that which God has given to us, and it is a gift from God. Light and knowledge, we have the mind of Christ dwelling in us. Amen? It changes everything. It changes the way you see the world. It's why when you talk to lost people and you tell them about the wonder and the joy and the glory of knowing God, they look at you and go, huh? It's because they don't have the mind of Christ. They can't understand until God Himself breathes life into them. It's why the whole idea of man's free will is such a foolish idea. Because man's free will is only for himself. It's only to hate God. It's only to chase after sin. It ruins us. And if God left us to our free will, we would all be in hell. God changes our will. He changes our minds. And He gives us the mind of Christ. Liberty. We approach the throne of God boldly. The entire Old Testament, the entire structure of it, the physicality of the temple, the physicality of how the people dwelt with God, it was designed to show them, stay away. Do not approach me. Do not come into my presence. Do not come near me. If you come near me, you will die. But we're told in the New Testament, come boldly 
before the throne of grace. Come into the presence of God with rejoicing and with singing and, and with a promise that we will be accepted because he is our father. That's why Jesus' prayer when the disciples said, teach us to pray, was such an appalling thing to the Pharisees. Because he began the whole work by saying, our father who art in heaven. You can't call God your father. And Jesus said, well, should I say daddy instead? Because that's who he is. And Paul echoes that. That's why in Romans chapter 8, he talks about us having a spirit that dwells in us that says, Abba. What is Abba? It's Aramaic for Papa. Papa, daddy. It's a term of endearment. This is ours, this liberty to come before the throne of God. Joy. If joy doesn't flow in your life because of that, you're missing something. Either I haven't done my job or you haven't been awake. But if joy is not your property because of everything that God has done for you and in you, then you absolutely have missed something crucial. Now you need to find your prayer closet. You need to get on your face and beg God to give you clarity so that joy is yours. Because joy is your promised possession. And it doesn't matter what has been done to you. It doesn't matter what has happened in your life. It doesn't matter what has gone before. What matters is that joy is your promised inheritance in Christ. And beloved, we spend way too much time listening to our emotions and listening to our feelings and way too little time preaching truth to our souls. And we need to lay hold of that. Because days are coming that joy is going to be really hard to find if you're trying to get it out of your circumstances. There are hard days on the horizon for the church because we have become very complacent and very worldly in our understanding of all things. And we've allowed our circumstances to dictate our reality instead of shaping truth or shaping the world according to the truth of God's word. Hear me. Joy is your promised inheritance. It is your possession in Christ. It's how the saints went to the fire singing. It's why the Romans stopped their ears to, to not have to hear the hymns that they sang as the lions tore them limb from limb. Historians of, of the day tell us that the singing of the Christians was terrible to hear. That's the word, terrible. And it's not because they couldn't carry a tune. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't the musicality of it. It was the fact that they were singing with such joy even as they died such terrible deaths. That's your inheritance. We have absolute confidence that we are accepted in the Beloved. And all of these blessings overflow in worship and praise to our God. This is the perfection that has been promised to us in Christ. And this is the perfection that is our inheritance in Him. And this is the perfection that has been given to you and granted to you by His work and not yours. And this is the perfection that He longs for you to understand. Beloved, stop chasing empty things. Stop running after the stuff that the world says matters. Because none of it does. The only thing that matters 
is Christ and Him crucified. Because in that truth is everything. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace and understanding in this day. And I pray, God, that you would let our hearts be filled with the knowledge of who you are and what you've done. And I pray, God, that as we consider this perfection that has been granted to us in the coming weeks, that you would give clarity and understanding, that you would refine our thinking, and that you would allow that everything that we do and everything that we are be conformed to the image of Christ. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen your people for the days that are ahead. But, God, we still beg you for the mercy of revival, the mercy of awakening, and the mercy of your hand intervening in these days. For, Father, this present darkness presumes to have power that it does not possess. And the church needs to rise up and seize what is ours. God, let us be pleasing in your sight in every way that Christ would be honored. We ask it in his name and for his glory alone. Amen.